celebrity world, maybe a sports player, maybe a actor, or maybe, you know, some person, I person that you wish you could meet. I, do we all have that person? I really didn't have that person. And then I didn't until I fell in love with my girl. And her name is Mal O'Brien. And you're like, I don't even know who she is. And I will tell you who she is. She has been doing CrossFit since she was 10. She's been a competitive gymnast since she was three. And I was first introduced to her when she was at a competition in St. Cloud. And she was probably 17 at that point. And or actually, no, she was 14. And she was amazing. The things she could do amazed me. Then I read that she battled um, Lyme disease in 2020. And since then, I've had her, my eye on her. She was Rookie of the Year, and so at 17, she um, competed with the women, and technically you don't do that till you're 18, um, but she did, and she got seventh. 2021, my friends and I decided to go to Austin, Texas, where we watched her, and my goal for the whole weekend was, I just want a picture with Mal O'Brien. And so we would watch all the, com the competitors come out, and I was like, there's her mom, there's her dad, there's her boyfriend, and they're like, my friends are like, should we be worried that you're going to like assault her? Because you know all the things about her. But I, it was the last day and I was like, I have to be more aggressive with this or I'm not gonna meet my goal. So the, I, you would watch the competitors come out and people would just like stand around and I'm like, there's her mom. And David's like, oh my gosh, what is she gonna do? Meanwhile, he's getting pictures with his favorite athletes okay so he's not totally dodging me but yeah so I uh, she comes out and I'm like Mel can I please get a picture and I got it so my goal was completed right the thing that inspired me about her is that number one she's so young and she has this grit and overcoming Lyme and being sick and like inspires me and the second thing that amazes me so then this year we go to Madison Wisconsin and she is competing with adults and she does, she got second, um, second fittest woman in the world. And she does this. Can you play the video? She's going up a ramp. I'll tell you, we're about to play a game. And I'm telling you, I like put my head backwards and Betsy's like, do I need to get help for you? Like I couldn't even like be up, upside down for a moment. Most of the time following God's lead means thinking and living a way that's so opposite that it kind of feels like we're walking upside down. Doing most things upside down may not come naturally to us, but there are often some benefits. Did you know? Researchers have shown that reading upside down, does anyone in here read upside down? Seriously? Okay, well, welcome to this world that I had no idea. It helps you to remember the words that you've read better. It helps struggling readers read more quickly, 
and have better understanding, and they say that it can help with dyslexia. I also read that just being upside down improves immunity, circulation, and heart health, strengthens your core, builds confidence and humility, and this one increases height. Maybe I should practice that. <laughs> what do you think? Being upside down just a little. Okay, I need four people. One, two, three, and I don't want you. Four. Okay, come here. You have to come here. We have to do this quick. Okay, so who are, okay, since you two said that you read upside down, one of you is going to lay here, okay? You are going to be his buddy right here. You, you, no, you have to put your head so you're upside down, okay? You are going to lay over here with your head upside down, okay? You're going to be her buddy, so you need to stand there. And what's going to happen is I have some words. They are the same words on each side, okay? And you cannot help. This is on Cooper and this is on Lydia. You, on the count of three, are going to show the words to your buddy. And the you don't have to read them upside down. I gave you a cue. Okay, great. Okay, <laughs> same thing. The clue, the, what the word is, is here, okay? So, on your mark, get set. You're going to read the word. On your mark, get set, go. Don't do too loud. He'll cheat. I know you. Ooh, maybe they are experts. What turn is she on? Did she get it? Ooh, who's going to win? What? They're reading upside down. What is it? Did you get it? That was her. Oh, she beat you. It's okay. Which one was the hardest? Flipped. Flipped. Nice job. Maybe reading upside down does. It's ironic. Oh, is it ironic? Thank you for. Okay. Reading upside down might help us read and remember words better, but it doesn't necessarily help us define the words we're reading. Sometimes the definition, you guys, is the hardest part. Have you ever used a word incorrectly and, be and then the person corrected you? It happened to me last week. So last week, me and my friend are talking about this person in our community who did some really bad things. And I say, hey, did you see in the newspaper the article says that he was sentenced? And she's like, yeah, how much time did he get? And I was like, 30 years. All of a sudden, she sends me a text a couple hours later, and she says, you don't know what the word concurrently means, Amanda. So it said, pleaded guilty of two felonies and was sentenced to 12 years for the first count and 16 years and eight months for the second. 12? plus 16, I was like, he got 28 years to be served concurrently, which means at the same time. 
She's like, you were thinking of consecutively. So I was thinking 12 and 16, but really he serves them at the same time. So there's a big difference between 16 years and almost 30. Definitions of words matter. There are many words in the Bible that are difficult to define. I'll name a few. Sanctification, justification, glorification, atonement, covenant. And today we're going to talk about a word in scripture that's often misunderstood and two ways that Jesus flips the understanding of it. We talked a little bit about it last week, but we're going to go deeper today. The goal is to see the word righteous from another viewpoint, a viewpoint that may be upside down to what we thought it would be. Did you know that in the 80s, people used the word righteous for awesome, amazing, and incredible? I had no idea. So, it is the wrong meaning. So why is it all over the Bible? In the Bible, righteous is the word we use when someone or something is right, correct, good in every way, and right living. What does it mean to live rightly? And that's exactly the question we humans have been trying to find the answer for, and we get it wrong over and over and over. Most of the time we get it wrong by reducing righteousness to this list of laws and rituals, thinking that if we follow them exactly the right way, we will be right with God. But that's not how God defines righteousness. Just like last week when you talked about Micah, how Micah came on the scene and was like, you people got it wrong. Isaiah also. God sent Isaiah to God's people to give them a message because they had it all wrong. And so instead of you flipping there, I'm actually going to read to you this, these verses from Isaiah 58 in a different translation because to me, it gets the point across even better. So listen up. Isaiah 58, 1. Shout, a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. This is God speaking to tell Isaiah to tell his people. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side. But they complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing means, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get you ant prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast I'm after? A day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting? A fast that I, God, would like. This is the kind of fast I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, and cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill, being available to your own families. Do this and the light will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. 
Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. Do you remember that scene in Eminem where it's like this battle of words and like I just feel like Isaiah was Eminem and he just, like God was like, mic drop, do you hear that you have it all wrong? Isaiah's words are very strong. God makes it clear that he heard their prayers, but he wasn't happy with their behavior. They are, seem to be doing a lot of right things by fasting. Fasting is when you give up food for a certain amount of time. But their fasting was selfish. They exploited others. They fought. They harmed each other. And they used fasting to earn God's favor. They missed the entire point. According to God, fasting, you, he wanted them to practice humility, fight against the injustice, set people free. This is because God's definition of righteousness wasn't about them building themselves up. Yes, you guys hear me. God wants us to read our Bible and practice disciplines to go closer to him. But when the fruit of those things is leading us to being more selfish rather than selfless, we've missed the point. And Jesus delivered a similar message to his followers. Remember, we've talked many, many times that the people, the religious people thought they had it all together, and Jesus called them out because they were more concerned about their righteous reputations. So I want you to turn to page 828. Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? So we're in Matthew 22, 36. Oh, wait a minute. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that righteousness isn't about just our relationship with God. It also has to include loving other people. So I thought of it like this. Ooh, bad marker. Faith. And then there's this list of the things we do. Let's put it over here. Going to church... Reading our Bibles, praying, following the rules, and then over here, this list of humility and selfish selflessness and justice, and compassion, and righteousness is this area in the middle. God is saying that you need all three of these to be righteous in his eyes. You can't have be righteous in his eyes if you don't have a relationship with him. You need to grow and have a relationship with him by doing these things, but they can't be just for yourself. They have to be about loving other people. 
So if you're like me and you look at this and you're like, I'll just add justice to my list. I'll just add loving others. I love to-do lists. To-do lists are so great. Sometimes I write things on my to-do list just so I can go like this and check them off. Kelsey, can I hear an amen? Right? But there, if you're just checking things off and saying I did them, there's no heart in the matter. With God, right living isn't about a perfect to-do list of prayer and church attendance. We're never supposed to be doing righteous things to earn God's approval or attention. What God's righteousness isn't a religious to-do list. It's an invitation to experience and reflect God's love. And that's how God flips our definition of righteousness. Not only did they get this whole righteousness thing wrong, they also had the wrong understanding of good enough. The religious people actually made laws so that they could follow them, and they would have been the first people to say, I'm doing the most. And let's take a look at what Jesus said to them. So now you're going to turn to page 810. Matthew 5, it is on the screen. Oh, it will be on the screen. Got it? So you can turn or you can... You have heard that... It was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the other one who would borrow. Instead of saying, hey, congratulations, leaders, Jesus actually said, sorry, what you're doing isn't good enough. You need to go the extra mile. The law that was intended of eye for an eye was intended to prevent unusual and inappropriate punishment. But people began using that as an excuse for revenge. An eye for an eye, he said, isn't good enough. If someone offends you, You don't take revenge. You go the extra mile and show them mercy and kindness and generosity. Have you or do you take revenge when people wrong you? But I need you to hear me. This is not, if you are being hurt or bullied or hurt in any way by anyone, this is not Jesus saying, suck it up. That is not what he's saying to you. And so if that is you, and you, if someone is harming you, the best thing you can do for that person and yourself is to tell someone, because that's the only way healing is going to come. So Jesus isn't telling you to just suck it up. But he continues, love your enemies. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. God's law said to love your neighbor. And God's people struggled to figure out who their neighbor was. They convinced themselves that they were fulfilling God's law by only loving the people they wanted to love. And Jesus needed to flip their understanding of who to love. Loving just the easy people is not good enough. Love everyone and even your enemies. 
There are times in life when our goals need to be more than good enough. Video. I found a generic one, and Isaac's like, remember that time dad was doing flips at that place in Arizona? You should use that one. So um, imagine if David, in the middle of his flip, was like, meh, I'm halfway. Good enough. There'd be a lot of pain involved. There is pain involved when we settle for good enough. I don't know about your family, but at my house, I'll tell my kids to go do a chore, and then I go, and I'm like, Kid said, kid, come back. And they're like, I did it. I did it. What are you talking about? And I'm like, uh, you half did the job, right? So that happens, right? And so good enough causes us more pain and time in the long run. Jesus went above and beyond for you and me. He didn't do the bare minimum. He gave everything for us. And now he invites us to extend that love to each other. Through his words and actions, Jesus flipped our understanding of what's good enough. So this had me reflecting on who I'm struggling to love right now. Who are you struggling to love right now? Who are we struggling to love? Is it a friend you've had a fight with? An acquaintance you can't stand? A family member who's super frustrating? Or maybe a teacher that just mm, isn't your favorite. What is your first mile? And what I mean by that are what are the first steps you can take to begin to show them love and mercy and kindness? You could pray for them. You could be the first to apologize. You could go out of your way and do something kind for them. That's easy. What is your second mile? And this is where things get interesting. How can you do even more than what's good enough for the person you're struggling to love? And what would that look like for you? Does it look like doing something generous for them? Does it mean praying that actually good things would happen for them? Maybe it's having a hard conversation. Maybe it's giving more compassion, more time, more energy or care than you really want to. If your second mile seems easy to do it in your own strength, you may not be thinking big enough. The kind of love Jesus invites us to extend to others is bigger than we're capable of doing on our own. For that kind of love, we need God's help and guidance and spirit. Jesus flipped our definition of righteousness and our understanding of what's good enough. Now he invites us to extend that same love to each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it can be so hard. We go from this pendulum of wanting to do all the right things and yet thinking, hey, we're good enough. And so, Lord, I, help, I just ask that you would help us to see ourselves, that you have done the work for us to be righteous and you paved this way to be right with you and to have a relationship with you and to love the people around us. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would help um, in our conversations to help identify how we can be more loving to people in our lives that are difficult or maybe not the most popular. Be with us, Lord. Help us to change in the community inside this room, but also outside. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.